This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with two experts on European economics and European policy, Diego Escaro and Pecha Barcelska, um, to discuss the impact of a um, pretty crazy energy market on European economies. Pecha, Diego, how are both of you? Hi, Hill. Pleasure to be here. Glad to have both of you here. This is a, uh, a topic that we've been trading emails about for several weeks, if not several months, trying to get you guys on the uh, on the agenda. So I, I know you all are both in high demand from clients, um, and, and I'm grateful for, for the time. And just so, so you all know, this is a topic that has come in by request. So there's a lot of curious ears uh, out there to, to listen for this. So um, I guess to dive right in, Diego, um, as we're looking at the situation in Europe, um, right now, we do a lot of conversations on this podcast about Europe uh, gas markets, uh, about all that is going on with the Ukraine, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and how that has upended um, oil markets, gas markets, whatever else. Um, we haven't taken things really to a higher level in, in terms of what it means for the broader European economy, um, different sectors, different countries. Um, and perhaps consumers as well. So, so can you help to frame us um, from the perspective of um, a macroeconomic thought with these post-invasion energy uh, shakeups? Sure, Hale. Um, so the quite sharp increase in energy prices having a large impact on, on the European economy. This um, impact has not been reflected on the GDP figures yet, uh, actually, the first half of the year, the economy was still supported by the reopening uh, of the uh, COVID uh, restrictions. You know, the economy reopened, that lifted particularly the service sector. And uh, if you look at real GDP, it was up by almost 5% in the first uh, two quarters of the year. But I think that's going to change quite dramatically. And we're looking at a significantly weaker second half of 2022, and mainly uh, we think that 2023 is going to be quite um, quite weak. Uh, just to give you an idea of the magnitude of the shock, if you look at consensus expectations for growth for next for next year in the eurozone, so as an average of uh, experts' expectations for GDP, um, back in February for 2023, we're looking at 2.5 percent. Uh, the latest consensus for the eurozone is just above stagnation. So okay. in five, six months, it's been a quite substantial deterioration of expectations for growth for next year. And actually, if you look at um, high frequency indicators, this weakness is already being reflected uh, there. So uh, for example, our uh, PMI, the composite PMI that looks at the, or includes the manufacturing and service sector, fell to uh, one and a half year low 
in August uh, is to the contractionary, contractionary territory. So that means slightly below uh, 50 for the second consecutive month. And if you look at the composition of you know, where the weakness is coming from, so most of the weakness is coming from manufacturing, but that was expected. The thing was concerning is that services, which has been kind of the main driver of growth in the first half of this year, um, the situation there is also deteriorating. And for the Eurozone, the PMI showed a small, small contraction in, in August. But, and so, yeah. We, we began the year with, with positive momentum and, and things are starting to slow, if not contract. Do we expect to finish 2022 on year-to-date GDP growth with, with more of a contraction baked in for 2023? Well, the, the our expectations, and uh, so there are many moving parts at the moment that may determine um, you know, where the economy ends uh, 2022. But I think the question is, Undeniable that we are looking at a uh, soft momentum, uh, deteriorating economic conditions. So the question is how how bad? Mm -hmm. For the eurozone as a whole, uh, we currently forecast a recession. So normally a recession is is defined as two consecutive quarters of quarterly declining GDP. Uh, within the fourth quarter of this year, it's going to be particularly weak, but this weakness is likely to to extend to early 2023. And I mean, it's not difficult to see why. If you look at wholesale gas prices, at the moment are around 10 times higher compared to the level in early 2021. And, and these retail, are natural gas prices. It, yes, yes, wholesale in, in, in Europe. Uh, retail prices, the increase in retail prices has been moderated, particularly through intervention from cap intervention in, in, in electric, electric, electricity markets, caps in energy prices. But still, if you look at retail electricity price in the eurozone, they rose by around 40% since early uh, 2021. The, the, the share of GDP in the eurozone, which is spent on energy, which hovered between two and four percent in the last ten years, is currently at nine percent of of GDP. Wow. So this is creating a quite a, a large shock to households' uh, finances. It's putting margins, uh, uh, firms' margins, under intense pressure, but also has led to a quite large drop in sentiment, particularly consumer sentiment. Consumers are increasingly more pessimistic about the uh, economic outlook and also has triggered tighter financial conditions. So all in all, and um, this even before discussing about the possibility of supply or constraints in supply of energy uh, late this year, which we think is a real possibility, particularly affecting the industrial sector, we are looking at a significantly you know, more or significantly challenging situation for, for the years and economy. Now, uh, I'll note that I don't think I heard the word inflation come out of your lips in that discussion. So, so we haven't even gotten into that yet, aside from the, yeah. the commodity price. But before we go into to that, and I want to pick up more on some of the consumer sentiment as well, Petra, can you help us on the policy response to much of what Diego just introduced? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, so Diego already mentioned uh, that governments uh, have started intervening in markets. And what we are seeing is uh, that there is definitely a political will for more government intervention and protectionism in energy markets. So the sentiment has been increasing for a while now, since the end of last year, actually. And uh, this is visible both at the national uh, EU level and at the EU level, uh, meaning uh, what's happening in Brussels uh, as well. So, uh, for example, last week, the Commission's President uh, Ursula von der Leyen announced in her State of the Union speech a proposal to cap the revenues uh, of electricity producers as part of this um, so-called uh, emergency intervention in the energy markets, uh, and uh, which is which is basically a windfall tax on presumed uh, excess profits of energy producers. Von der Leyen also stated that uh, gas prices would need to be decoupled from the cost of electricity. Actually, a revenue cap was uh, one of the measures that was already discussed by EU energy ministers a week before uh, von der Leyen's speech. And they, and, I mean, there was a broad consensus that this could be endorsed potentially uh, in the future. In general, this uh, statement by von der Leyen, also this sentiment that we are seeing by member states confirms uh, uh, what we have been uh, thinking for a while now, that uh, now for uh, for European policymakers, a priority is to intervene in markets. The, the reason for, for that is because they would be trying to address the price volatility and, and uh, these uh, high uh, energy prices. And there is an increasing political will to change the mechanism by which higher gas prices affect uh, wholesale electricity prices. We we've, uh, we have been monitoring that and we are seeing that many EU member states are now uh, likely to revise previously held positions on a more limited uh, intervention in, uh, in markets. And this is because of the pressure on uh, households' living standards, but also on, on businesses. In yes? As we think about the policy response, should we be looking at it as a, a policy response from Europe, or are we seeing more localized activity at, say, a country-by-country country level where some countries are going their own road? Yeah, we are seeing both. Actually, we are seeing more uh, this more of this uh, in terms of uh, the state and intervention at the EU level, but also at a national level within the EU. Uh, so uh, countries have uh, different policies, but in general, everything from what we can uh, tell is happening under an EU umbrella. So we are seeing uh, tax cuts, price caps, and the state aid. So, uh, for example, the European Commission will uh, propose an amendment to the EU state aid rules in uh, in October, uh, or these are the expectations. And probably the state aid rules would be relaxed to accommodate the, the allocation of more financial support for uh, struggling sectors and uh, businesses. So in general, we see the EU umbrella and this EU guidance because at the end of the day, the EU and uh, the European Commission, particularly the European Commission is in charge of uh, a lot of EU policy responses. The EU in general, very unlikely to want to uh, harm 
and common EU market. Uh, but uh, the EU is also made of 27 uh, member states, and these uh, member states influence policies. So if you see uh, more EU countries being open to intervene in markets, energy markets and in general in markets, then it is very likely for the EU to start going into that uh, policy direction. Okay. And Diego, we've mentioned the word inflation a couple minutes ago as we're talking about price caps and other consumer benefiting policy efforts. How does that balance with what is also a kind of a global theme right now in terms of inflation? If you keep consumer prices down or try to lower consumer prices on energy, does that money inflate services and goods outside of energy? Or how should we think about that? Yes. If you look at European inflation, um, this is something that preceded the the war in Ukraine. I mean, prices had been increasing before the war. And if you look at the composition of inflation uh, in the initial stages, so late 2021, early 2022, it was almost all about energy. Mm-hmm. So 60, 70% of, of European inflation was explained by energy. Now that share has come down. So energy is still the largest driver of inflation, but uh, it explains around you know, 40, 40%, 50% of, of uh, overall increase in prices. So what we are seeing is energy prices remaining incredibly very elevated, but also the prices of services and particularly the price of food, the food price inflation picking up quite substantially. Now, part of this being driven by high energy prices, so some services are affected by uh, energy prices. So if you have a restaurant, for example, if your energy bill to be cooked food goes up, that feeds into the final prices. But the normally, particularly service prices, uh, inflation is much more sticky. So it takes right. longer to to come down. So we are looking at a situation where energy prices may not have picked. So we are expecting them to pick maybe by the fourth quarter of this year. But then even if inflation picks uh, late this year, we expect the disinflation to be quite gradual. And that means that inflation for next year is likely to be more than double the ECB's target. So our latest projection shows inflation on average to be about 5% in the Eurozone in 2023. And that has implications for, uh, firstly, for the economy as a whole for growth. So one of the concerns policymakers had was that um, we may see a second round effect, uh, second round effects, which means that high inflation leads to high wages, which uh, leads to high inflation and so on. Uh, so. But we are, we're seeing is that wage inflation, even with unemployment being relatively low in the Eurozone, is likely to lag, to lag inflation, so price inflation, uh, late this year and in 2023, which means that uh, household finances are likely to be under significant pressure. And well, I think what is interesting as well is just to look at the, at the policy response, because the policy mix in the Eurozone has changed. I mean, the last 10 years, what we had is that we had quite very accommodative monetary policies, so um, interest rates were negative, we have QE. Uh, fiscal policy has been from contractionary 
to you know, times where it supports the economy, but in general, contractionary. Mm-hmm. We're now just we're looking at the opposite. So the ECB has increased interest rates by 125 basis points in July and, and August. So we see another you know, similar increase for the end of the year. So monetary policy is becoming more restrictive, but at the same time, fiscal policy is being used to support the economy has been used in countries where even in countries where you know fiscal position is has deteriorated quite substantially since the uh, the start of the pandemic and we think that that's something that is going to remain in place next year and one i think one of the interesting things to to follow over the next few months is how will governments respond to the shock on the economy and i think that it is likely that Fiscal support, you know, we may not see the last in terms of fiscal support coming from national governments you know, as they try to mitigate the impact of higher energy price on the economy. So we're balancing a, a uh, an, an accommodative fiscal policy with, with a restriction or restrictive monetary policy. I think I think that's likely. I think the, the when we look at the ECB's communication and we look at what's important for the ECB. At the moment, you know, the reaction function. I think it is clear that the main objective is to bring inflation down. And also, there's a question of what will happen if the economy enters a sharp recession late this year. And I think in the past, recessionary conditions would have made would have led the ECB to stop any you know, tightening cycle. Now this time might be different because inflation. Now, the moment is 9%, it's unlikely to be significantly lower by late 2022. So it is very likely that we're going to see tighter monetary conditions. On the fiscal side, so we've seen a deterioration of fiscal condition of public finances. Uh, firstly, coming from the uh, foreign activity and, and all the um, different measures put in place during the pandemic. And although public finances have compared to where they were in, you know, let's say, mid-late 2020, fiscal deficits are still quite elevated compared to where they were in 2019, just before the pandemic. Now, we can discuss, you know, whether, you know, countries like Greece, Portugal, where they have fiscal space, mm-hmm. and, you know, at the moment, they are, the borrowing costs have increased, but if you look at nominal borrowing costs or what they pay, to raise debt in, in markets, still below nominal growth in the economy. So the so, question is, yes. So so Petch is nodding here. So so I want to I want to bring her in that that I'm I'm sensing that there's a Europe is characterized by often Southern European countries behaving differently than perhaps their more frugal northern neighbors. And if the ECB, the European Central Bank, is able to decide monetary policy for all 27 countries, each of these fiscal countries can act their own way and each has different characteristics. So are you seeing any coordination, Petra? Did you have any thoughts on how we should look at the fiscal angle for each of these countries? 
Yeah, I was not not nodding because uh, yes, indeed, for some countries in the EU and in the eurozone, it would be great if they continue with the very expansionary fiscal policy. Whereas for others, this is really something that they will not want to do. But uh, we have seen uh, fiscal expansion even in countries such as Estonia, for example, which is really uh, usually extremely prudent and uh, it had one of the lowest debt and deficit levels in the eurozone. But because actually uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, countries such as Estonia and Poland, for example, is a, another good example, started increasing their um, defense spending. And mm-hmm. they, this will uh, also impact their balances and balance sheets in the next few years. So we have seen a, an expansionary fiscal policy or a trajectory towards a more expansionary fiscal policy also in countries that usually will not take such a stance. And I have to mention something that we will be monitoring and we have been monitoring for a while now is the uh, reform of the stability and growth pact. So these are this pact basically um, gives, uh, I mean, tells you countries uh, how to, to balance their fiscal position. Uh, it, it imposes very strict uh, debt and deficit rules. And uh, in the next few months, uh, one of the debates at the EU level would be the reform of this uh, stability and growth pact. One of the proposals, for example, is to uh, provide an exception for green investments. So basically, mm-hmm. these green investments would not be under uh, put under these very strict uh, fiscal rules. Another proposal, which actually was tabled a few months ago by countries such as Greece and Poland, uh, a coalition of countries, uh, was to uh, give an exception to fence spending which is also something uh, that uh, should be noted. So in general, we don't think these fiscal rules would be uh, enforced uh, next year. Uh, But uh, in general, we probably will see some kind of adjustments of the rules, Uh, maybe not such comprehensive reform that uh, some countries uh, want. And of course, we will continue to see this uh, rift between the more prudent northern countries, such as Sweden, the Netherlands, uh, and the southern countries. Still, uh, given the dynamics that are happening now, we are, at least in the the political debate now, we're not seeing these rifts as we would have seen them if we didn't have the war in Ukraine or if Mm -hmm. we didn't have the high energy prices. And how about if we move down a level that that we're talking about the decision makers within government and within policymakers, let's move down a little to the consumers. Are are we seeing what's Often in the U.S., we look at Europe as Europe as a single entity. Of course, it's very different. Are either of you seeing different levels of response from consumers in regards to either the economic environment or the support for Ukraine, given the high energy price consequences of the the invasion? Maybe I'll start with you, Petra. Yeah, maybe. Yes, of course, we'll see some volatility in terms of the, of the political support uh, uh, in regards to, for example, providing military support to Ukraine or sanctions against uh, Russia. And this opposition by certain political groups in, in countries, for example, such as Italy or Germany, uh, Greece, uh, Bulgaria, uh, is uh, likely to increase if you have more uh, protests. Also, if you have, for example, we will have elections uh, in uh, in Italy. And we also have elections in uh, Bulgaria. So these could influence certain policies. But uh, I have to note that most of the sanctions against Russia would be renewed in March of next year. 
uh, some would be renewed in June of uh, 2023. So during winter, uh, when uh, we are likely to see the the pressure on, pressure on governments to uh, mitigate the burden on households and businesses, and when we could see also uh, protests uh, by different groups uh, across the EU, then uh, the sanctions regime will not be renewed. So mm-hmm. on the on the policy front, in the, the six months outlook, we are very much likely to see uh, a continuation of uh, of the policy of sanctions and support for Ukraine. That said, as I said, uh, we probably will see some volatility. Of course, Congress uh, has also stated uh, that uh, it will not support EU sanctions against Russia. And I should mention that uh, all EU member states, all 27 of them, have to agree to renew or impose uh, new sanctions. On the support for refugees, for example, we are very likely to see, to continue to see support at the, at the policy level. But uh, as we have indicated also in our analysis, we are incre- increasingly like to see uh, protests against Ukrainian refugees uh, where they, mm-hmm. uh, they they have been settled. Or uh, we are also uh, likely to see, and we actually uh, seeing that, in, for example, in France, assaults against uh, Ukrainian refugees by different groups. So, uh, all in all, it would be a, a little bit more, um, not so, such a black and white picture. Does any country or countries feel perhaps more fragile than, than another in terms of, of some of this discomfort with things? Uh, so, for example, even in Poland, sure has been extremely supportive of Ukraine and uh, it has hosted uh, more than a million or two million uh, Ukrainian refugees. You could see targeted assaults against Ukrainian refugees. So even within countries that are supporting uh, Ukraine, you could see uh, such sentiments. Uh, but if we talk about uh, countries as a whole, some changes could occur, for example, in, in Bulgaria, the political party with the highest chances of support uh, in Italy has said that they will continue to uh, to back uh, Ukraine. Uh, but uh, we could see some uh, policy uh, adjustments uh, there as well. In general, Hungary, um, I mentioned it, uh, is, is a country that the start of the war has been least supportive both of Ukraine and uh, supporting sanctions. But um, uh, in, in Germany, Germany's position on, san- on the sanction regime is very unlikely to, uh, to, to change. Uh, and this would be despite the fact that see the far left or the far right in Germany being much more skeptical of the need of sanctions and much more skeptical of uh, the openness to, to Ukrainian refugees. Okay. And, and, and I want to, I promise you, I'd get you all both out of here within about 30 minutes. So, so I want to ask each of you a uh, final question and uh, we'll start with Diego. Petra, just a heads up that we'll come to you after. Um, but Diego, I guess first on, on kind of the, the economic outlook that we're expecting contractionary environment for the next few quarters and stagnation in 2023. What are the things that we should be watching? What, what are some milestones or activities that we should really be paying attention to? For the next say six to twelve months from economics, and Petra, I'll come back to you with the same question on policy. Sure. Yeah. I mean, just just before I I touch on the uh, um, on, on the factors that we should really look at over the next six to twelve months, I mean, it's it's easy to overdo the uh, doom and gloom uh, when we look at the European economic situation, but I think it's important to highlight that there are still you know some pockets of 
positivity, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the uh, labor market conditions, uh, unemployment reached a record low in July. Uh, the uh, EU funds coming from the uh, recovery and resilience facility are likely to be a quite a large contributor to growth, particularly in Southern European economies. Um, the same Southern European economies are benefiting from a very strong tourism sect, um, season, partly fueled by the uh, the weak euro. And as, as we mentioned before, I think fiscal policy uh, should help to mitigate some of these, uh, some of the impact of higher prices. But it is a mitigation, so it's not going to prevent a recession. In terms of factors that we uh, look at, I will just mention mentioned three. I mean, the first one is, which I kind of implied early on, is what governments do in terms of fiscal policy. I think we haven't seen the uh, the, the last in terms of uh, measures uh, implemented by, uh, by national governments. I think they are likely to do more. And although that is going to help to sustain activity in the short term, they have a fiscal, they will have a fiscal uh, implication. So in terms of the measures of uh, fiscal sustainability and, and stress in, in um, sovereign market is something that we should really look very closely. Um, another factor that is uh, it's going to be quite important, but we can't do anything about it, unfortunately, is the weather. Yeah. I think the, the, the difference between having a mild uh, winter and a cold winter in terms of uh, energy demand uh, might be quite, uh, you know, the impact on 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 uh, on the supply demand balance can be quite um, quite important. And the the last one, which is related, is so we know that uh, this winter, winter 22-23 is going to be very difficult for the economy. I mean, what we don't know if it's going to be like a one-off, this one winter, or right. is it something that uh, we're looking at a a uh, similar situation or even worse situation in uh, next winter 23-24. And I think one, one thing we should look at very closely is at uh, gas storage levels in the Eurozone. So they've, the EU has been quite successful in replenish gas storage. We go into the winter with, you know, quite high, high above average levels. But the question is, where are we going to end up March next year and whether they will be able to replenish them again for next winter or for winter of 23-24, given that we are unlikely to see inflows of uh, Russian gas next year. Right. And are there any, so, so we're paying attention to the ECB, we're paying attention to Germany, we're paying attention to France. Are there any other countries perhaps that, that are, are not on our immediate radar that we should be paying attention to? Um, well, I think Germany is one is high on the list, uh, given the um, um, reliance on Russian gas and the economic structure. So, you know, the industrial sector is larger than average. So, uh, the, the, we think that German economy is likely to be more impacted than the years on average. Um, and this is something I, I, it's not my area of specialty, but emerging Europe. Uh, countries where which have very strong links to to the German economy, they are also likely to uh, be hit more than average as well. And, and Petra, uh, how about on the policy side? Are there some 
you mentioned a couple of elections or uh, one of you mentioned a couple of elections coming up. Are there other areas that, that we should pay attention to over the next six, 12 months? Well, we can say that in the short term, uh, we should be looking at the fact that um, many energy transition plans under the European Green Deal is probably going to be reversed. Uh, and this is not something that is uh, extremely surprising. Uh, so since uh, March and then um, when the EU started progressively uh, introducing uh, its uh, sanction regime against uh, Russia, it became clear that uh, in the short term, uh, you have more imports of LNG, imports of other of gas from other suppliers and also more use usage of coal. So in the short term, uh, we in the next one, two years, we will likely continue to see more consumption of this so-called dirty fuels, uh, which uh, actually reverses previous uh, plans. Also, something that I mentioned and Diego also mentioned was tax cuts. So the consumption tax cuts, the price caps, and uh, this is uh, actually contrary to previous plans to align tax policy with the EU green agenda. So in the short term, we, we saw, for example, excess uh, excise duties and taxes on, on, on diesel to, to go down, to alleviate the burden on, uh, on consumers, which is actually co contrary to the EU Green Deal. In the long term, we don't think that this uh, will change plans to green the economy uh, in Europe, but uh, actually this short-term reversal uh, could, uh, at the end of the day, actually accelerate uh, some actions. This uh, policy act actions will probably be uh, probably vary by country. Some countries use the introduction or, uh, of uh, more and more comprehensive green policies. For example, in in Sweden, uh, whilst in others you you will uh, continue to see policies that support uh, fossil fuels. For example, in Bulgaria, but even in Sweden now you see increased support for nuclear energy, and this, according to some NGOs, is not the, the greenest. Of all right, so lots to pay attention to. Well, thank you both uh, for joining us today. And uh, we, we advertise that our email address is energysense at ihsmarket.com. So, so please, if anybody's listening and wants to learn more about uh, Diego and Pecha and the services we provide on economic forecasting and country risk, um, reach out through that for more information on this discussion and we'll put information in the liner notes for information about their services. So, so Pecha, Diego, thank you both and I, uh, I hope we can do this again for an update and hopefully on a more optimistic terms, Diego. Thank you. Hopefully. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.